I'm Monique Singroy, and this is Brushed by Fame, stories of encounters with the famous as told by everyday people. Whether it's six degrees of separation or just two, there are countless stories out there just waiting to be told right here. So sit back, turn off the phone, and listen in. You are listening to the premiere episode of the Brushed by Fame podcast. Stories of encounters with the famous as told by the people who met them. My name is Monique Singroy. I'm a writer and a journalist. I've worked in news for over 20 years as a news writer, producer, and reporter. I love a great story. And what I'm hoping Brushed by Fame will become, be a place for great stories. That's basically what I want this to be. So I'm joined by my very first guest, Pat Ivers. She's a good friend and a dynamite editor. We worked together at WPIX. That's the New York WB Tribune station. Is it still Tribune? No, it's somebody else. It's been okay. it's sold like three times since okay. then. Okay. All right. But it was only when she retired that I learned about her amazing past role as a music documentarian. I kept it quiet for years. <laughs> <laughs> so Pat Ivers began documenting punk music performers and bands starting back in the late 70s, 1977, shooting in clubs like CBGB's, Irving Plaza, and the Mud Club. She and her partner, Emily Armstrong, amassed a huge body of work and produced a cable program as well, Nightclubbing, the first weekly TV show to feature bands like The Cramps, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and the Dead, Dead Kennedys. In 1980, They created the Video Lounge at Danceteria, one of the most iconic nightclubs of the 1980s. I've been there. And this uh, installation helped to pioneer the concept of the video DJ. They've screened their films in museums, at universities, nationally and internationally. And then in 2010, New York University acquired and digitally restored their collection of films And that's where they are available now. Now, are they available for anybody to go see there or you have to study there? They're pretty loose about it. You know, you have to, I think you have to make an appointment maybe. Okay. Uh, You're not a student, but they've been very generous about letting anyone look at it. You can't take it away, but you 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 can look at it at the library. Oh, that's cool. All right. So welcome, Pat. This is my very first podcast, and you're my very first guest. I'm honored. <laughs> so let's start basically from the beginning. Like, what were you doing so that you that gave you the capacity to be able to go out and film all these bands back in the 70s? Well, I actually started in 1975 with a bunch of guys. We were all working at Manhattan Cable at the time. And we had all of, we were working in the public access department and we had all of this equipment that we were supposed to be training the public how to use so they could make their own cable TV shows, which we indeed did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on the weekends, a lot of the equipment was just sort of sitting around in in the storeroom and they were always saying, oh, we should do something. We should do something. And I said, well, let's, let's go to CBGB's and, and videotape some bands. The first unrecorded band festival happened in August of 1975. Mm-hmm. And so we went and asked Hilly, the owner, if we could come down. He said yes. He always said yes. 
Uh-huh. And we went down and the first night we videotaped the talking heads and Blondie and uh, the, the heartbreakers. And it was, it was pretty exciting. I worked with these guys for a year and they said, uh, you're crazy. We're not making mon- any money off of this. So we're not going to do this with you anymore. And I was so bummed. But the following year, I met Emily. She came to work at Manhattan Cable. Mm-hmm. And I took her to CBGB's and I told her the story. And she said, I'll, I'll work with you. Mm-hmm. And so we started working together. And that's that's how the go nightclubbing story <laughs> So well, it, you have, it took two women to make it happen. Basically. Yeah. Well, what else is new? Were you a big punk rock music fan back then? Well, I saw Patti Smith in 1974 at Max's. And I lived, Emily and I both lived on her block on East 10th Street in like 1971, 72. Oh, wow. And I lived on one end of the block. Emily lived on the other end of the block. We didn't know each other yet. Uh-huh. But Patty lived in the middle. So we used to see her all the time. When uh-huh. we were going up and down the street, she used to do poetry at the St. Mark's in the Bowery Church, which was on the corner. Okay. And so, you know, I knew her as a poet. And then when I heard that she was going to do this rock and roll thing at Max's Kansas City, I went to see her. And, uh, you know, it was like getting hit with a bolt of lightning. I said, this is it. Everything has changed. This is so fabulous. And uh, so that was how I became a punk rock fan. That's, that's wild. What was it like the night you went to see like Debbie Harry and the talking heads? That was your first night. That was, that was our first night videotaping. Did you even know Uh, who they were? I knew the names. Okay. But it was just sort of like this kind of, you know, word of mouth. I mean, I lived on the Lower East Side. So, you know, there was always, you know, a lot of talk going on among Mm -hmm. people. And yeah, so, you know, I, I heard of them. I, I knew about CDs, you know, because because I'd gone to Max's. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of a natural evolution. I mean, I didn't really like Debbie that much when I saw her. Mm-hmm. But uh, the owner said to me, she's going to be big. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Talking heads, they'll be big. Debbie, I don't know. Yeah. But of course, I was completely wrong. And as she went on, she, you know, just got better and better. And she, was, she, she did an enormous number of cover songs in the beginning. Okay. But then oh. she started doing her own material and it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, got better. I don't think I heard of her until like, I guess it was 1979 with their first, you know, their first hit off of the Heart of Glass. Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, it was the uh, Unrecorded Band Festival. Yeah, and what is what is that? Is that just people it was band that didn't have a recording contract? Oh, wow! So did a lot of them. Nobody had a recording contract at that point. Did it, did a lot of them get discovered down there that way? Um, yeah, I mean, they a lot of them weathered the winnowing of bands, and and you know, some did, some didn't, but it was you know, it was the beginning. It was the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that you were like at the beginning of something really? Absolutely. Totally, totally, totally. I mean, I was so convinced from the very, very beginning that this was uh, a lightning strike moment, that this was something that was never going to be repeated, that I was standing at the brink of something. And that's why I was so upset when when the guys that I worked with wouldn't keep going with me. But Uh luckily, Emily uh, saw what I saw. 
And because uh, we were both big music fans. We had always been big music fans since we were like little kids. I mean, yeah. I went to be my first band when I was 11. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. Wow. And what did that involve? That You needed another person to carry the equipment. What was what was. Yeah. I mean, the first time I mean, we uh, you know, when I was working with these guys, we basically set up a little mini studio in CBGB's. We had a switcher and three cameras and a little audio thing. I mean, it was pretty. Wow, that's involved, yeah. And we did that a few more times, you know, when we could. But for the most part, it was just me and Emily and uh, one camera. And we always had incredibly great relationships with the tech people in clubs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, being a tech person myself. So I was able to uh, always get a feed from the board. Mm-hmm. So I'd have good audio. It wasn't like crap audio from the yeah. in-camera mic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I could usually work with a camera person, uh, sorry, with a lighting person so that, you know, the, the lighting was better. And and uh, uh, when we got a color camera, we would have to bring these, I don't, I don't know if you remember these, they're called Lowell D lamps. They were these clamp lights. They were like about this big. They were so hot. And we would put them up. And I mean, the clubs are hot to begin with. We'd put these freaking lights up, these poor yeah. guys, you know, performing underneath of it. But, you know, they wanted to get videotaped. So they they suffered through it. Did they get a copy of it? Oh, yeah, always. Oh, okay. I would never, I would never tape a band that I didn't have, you know, some kind of relationship with. And, and they agreed to it, in, you know, way in advance. And, and, and it, you know, we would give them a copy. Although in the beginning, you, what am I going to give them? A three-quarter inch copy? You know, I mean, yeah. sure, here, see if you can find a three-quarter inch deck somewhere. Because uh, it was a while before VHS even came out. Yeah, you were shooting on film. No, no, no. No, no? all videotape. No, all videotape. It was all video, really, back in the 70s. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it was reel-to-reel video. Okay. It was so, it was, I always said, it wasn't the cutting edge. It was the bleeding edge of video. It was so early. But, uh, you know, that's what I knew. You know, I, I went to NYU. So that's that's how I uh, got my training. Oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. So do you have any, like, crazy stories, like, with, with working with one of these bands? That, we, that you can tell. <laughs> but I can tell. Um, <laughs> all right. There was a, a, a great night when we uh, videotaped the Dead Boys. Mm-hmm. And we loved them. They were friends of ours. They were they they were the Sex Pistols of America. Oh wow! And I introduced them to John Belushi, which is something that I've regretted for the rest of my life. Why? What happened? Well, what do you think happened? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Oh boy! <laughs> it, it, it didn't bring out the best in any of them. Let's put it that oh. way. Oh my and, god! Yeah. And they they were they were doing this this show. And at the end of the concert, the, the lead guitarist, they, they broke all their instruments. And, uh, and the lead guitarist just like picked up a beer bottle and threw it into the crowd. And I mean, he really didn't mean anything by it. Yeah. But he, it, it made contact with this girl's head who was a writer for Vogue magazine and, wow. and like almost knocked her out. And the... I mean, it's terrible that I'm laughing about this, but it was funny at the time. And the bouncer, this wonderful guy, Murph, you know, had to wade into the crowd and, and pick her up and carry her out. Oh, my and, God. Uh, you know, you see the light bouncing off her LeMay pants. 
And, uh, <laughs> That's yeah. quite an image to remember. And Belushi played with them when their drummer got stabbed in an altercation on the Bowery. Oh my God. And, and was hospitalized. He was, he was in pretty serious condition for a while. Uh-huh. And they had a four day benefit for him and everybody played. It was just great. Yeah. And Belushi came and played with them. And Divine, you know, mm-hmm. Divine from oh, yeah. Water Smoothies, she came with her, uh, they were, her, she was doing this off-Broadway show called uh, Divine and the Neon Women that were <laughs> also playing on Bowery. They were uh-huh. a few up in off-Broadway theater. And one of the go-go dancers was dating one of the guys in the Dead Boys. So uh, they came and performed. And I mean, it was, it was uh-huh. magic. What can I that tell you? Security so the vine walked in. It was just, uh, it was mayhem in the club. You don't see that 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 often anymore. This that, that crossover of you know music and TV people and you know Broadway performers, all kind of interweaving like it did back in the seventies with you know with Saturday Night Live and you know the performers also sang and and stuff like that. You know, I think it was because people didn't have that. There wasn't this, you know, sense of self that uh, exists now, where everything is about selfies and and how do I look and all that sort of thing. Performers, I mean, all the all the punk people that I knew, they were very authentic. That there wasn't nothing that was an act. You know yeah. what I mean? They were, they were exactly as you saw them, and that authenticity, I think made things very, very different. You know, they, 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 they were very real. And I think that translated mm-hmm. people like Belushi, who was probably desperate for something real, you know, from working in TV where there's a lot of assholes <laughs> and, uh, and, and divine. I mean, she, that was, his, that was her people. Mm-hmm. So it was all, it was all quite lovely. That is people were incredibly nice. I mean, the punk rockers were uh, so sweet. I, I can't really think of anyone who I thought was was an awful person. So the repu- the reputation of them as being these hard ass, no, kind of crazy, angry people. I think that was more of an English thing, to tell you the truth. Okay, and and I think people are very confused about the English versus the the Americans. Uh, okay. You know, the English, I think, on the other hand, never did a thing where they weren't thinking about how do I look. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The Pistols, you know, became famous when they did this publicity stunt where they followed the Queen's boat. She had, I don't know, it was some anniversary of the Queen, and they followed her in in, in some other boat, and we're playing God's, you know, their song, God Save the Queen. Uh-huh. And it was all for the cameras. Mm-hmm. The, the sad thing, I think it was it was their undoing in many ways, is that American punks were really very uh, distrustful of the media mm-hmm. and were afraid of them in a weird way and, mm-hmm. and, and didn't, you know, like it. And we would have every so often like a, a news uh, station would show up at the club and it, the club would empty. Really? <laughs> they would just leave. <laughs> they didn't want to talk to them. They didn't want to know from them. So it was it was very, very different. The the Brits were all about the publicity. The Americans were all like against the publicity. They just huh. they were uncomfortable with it. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So um how did this eventually translate into the Danceteria video installation? It was it was a small mall. You know, everybody knew everybody. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were if you were at CBGB's, you could be sitting at the end of the bar talking to Joey Ramone. I mean, no problem. It was a very small crowd. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you all knew each other. That's why it was easy for me to videotape people because everybody kind of knew me by reputation. Mm-hmm. I wasn't hurting anybody. I wasn't yeah. trying to rip anybody off. I was a good person. And that, that sort of made things simple. The guy, the, the two managers at Grand Danceteria, one of them had booked Haraz, which was another, another club up, uh, up in the Upper West Side. Uh-huh. Uh, and he kind of reached out to us and asked us if we wanted to do a video installation for the opening night party mm-hmm. at Danceteria. So I came up with this idea of the video lounge, which was setting up all these like little living rooms that look like, you know, like your, your, your grandparents rec room, you know, in, in suburbia uh, with kind of crappy couches and TVs. <laughs> but the, the sort of the twist was that the video that you saw on uh, the TV sets was completely unlike anything you would have seen at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were seeing punk bands. You were seeing this weird found footage that we, that we had collected, like would be like an octopus fighting a, uh, you know, a rattlesnake or whatever. Uh, I mean, uh, or I guess it would be in the eel, it would be something in the water. And so we had all these weird, and we'd put it to music. And so then we had all these like weird clips that we would play and add it with, uh, and, and, and mix it up with all the bands that we, that we had shot. And then every night when the bands were on, I would go down, because this was all on its own separate floor. So I would go downstairs and shoot the bands and the video would go upstairs to the video lounge and people could watch the bands in this room without having to go downstairs and, and sit, sit in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was really just supposed to be for the opening night. And it was such an incredible success that, you know, they kept it as a permanent feature. You know, it was the first time the video had ever been its own little thing in a nightclub. And also the only time that it had like this weird alternate programming, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't just like, you know, crap music videos. It was like all kinds of other stuff to engage you. That was like right before MTV. It was right before MTV. Yeah. Yeah. It was before, because I think they started in 81 or something. Yeah, that's right. It was a lot of people I knew went to MTV. I was uh, disdainful. But I was, you know, <laughs> and uh, we had a fantastic staff. Keith Herring was our bus boy. Get out of here. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my he, was God. He, he was our bus boy. And um, David oh Juan Rovich, another artist who, who had this huge Whitney uh, retrospective right before uh-huh. the pandemic. I mean, it's Zoe Leonard. She's another, she's a female photographer. Uh-huh. Very famous. Wow. Uh, so, you know, we had this unbelievable staff of people. I was there in 84 or 85. And yeah, legal by then. They had the video thing going on, but it was more like just on that one floor. Yeah. And I was on this like date that would never end. And I missed the last train out of, oh, you know, Metro North. So we ended up just like curling up on a couch in Danceteria on that, you know, in that living room setting, just waiting for the night to pass by so I could get on the 6 a.m. train. Well, I'll never forget that. It was just so, such a surreal thing. Well, if you had been at the original danceateria, you could have been there no problem till eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think 
they closed at like five back then. So uh-huh. they, yeah, they kicked us out at five o'clock. But yeah, that's that <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> so now you you know you've you've amassed all of these this footage. Yeah. Who were you know who were some of the other bands that you that you did shoot? Iggy Pop. Uh huh. He he actually uh, tried to pick me up at Danceteria. Did he really? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, I told him he had to take me to the movies first. He got a he got a good laugh out of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I want to do another show on just the whole nightclub scene yeah. in Manhattan because it's it it con- you know constantly changes, and uh, it just isn't what it used to be. No, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, me neither. Yeah, but that's just that's just so funny. So after Danceteria, and you just collected all this footage, what did you end up having? Like, how many can you know? Was it rolls or cans or it discs? was it, it was all it was all on you know primarily on cassette. Okay, uh, three quarter inch cassette. Mm-hmm. That was the vast vast majority of it. We, oh, we also got robbed at Danceteria. When, wow. when I came back to the club, all the TVs were gone and almost all of the videotapes were gone. Now, who steals videotapes, I ask you? But I had never trusted anyone at the club. And so I was quietly taking the videotapes home at night and making copies, uh-huh. leaving copies at home. So if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have had anything of our, oh, wow. our, our, our you know, six months of danceateria. But wow. I'm I'm an untrustworthy, uh, untrusting person. Wow. So, uh, so I, I I was luckily I mean but I I mean I I lost REM, their first show in New York. Oh my God. Um, you know Nico. Uh, wow. you know, tons and tons and tons of people. Oh but, my God. Uh, but I I, I salvaged uh, a fair amount. Oh my God. Yeah. So now. So so we had it. So I yeah. mean. Honestly, we, I guess it was like, uh, you know, the following year, we did a tour of America and mm-hmm. we went to uh, a bunch of museums and nightclubs and, and showed edits of our, our videos. What year was this? Uh, <laughs> it was funny. We got Eastern Airlines. Had, uh-huh. Do you remember? They yeah, had remember Eastern uh, those fly anywhere in the U.S. Mm-hmm. for $300 for yeah. a month. And so, you know, we were such little nerds. We figured out, we had, you had to get the, the book of that Eastern Airlines put out of their, of all their flights. They had a book. You could go to their, their headquarters, you know, like uh-huh. their, their door and go through it. And so we figured out, we, you know, contacted a bunch of nightclubs and then we would look for a museum in every town that had a nightclub that we thought we could, you know, show or vice versa. Uh-huh. If we found a museum first, then we'd look for a nightclub or whatever. And uh, so we, we, we went to, uh, let's see, Atlanta, San Francisco, L.A., Minneapolis, Chicago. I think that was it. And then New York. Yeah, come, came back to New York. And uh, so we did that. Everything went through uh, Atlanta. We, I think it was Atlanta. Uh-huh. I don't know. There, it had a hub city. I remember that. And the, the best thing we did was we bought a, uh, 
a membership in like the, their lounge, you know, like <laughs> you could go and yeah. I would, I'd be in like my total punk clothes. I would be passed out on a couch, you know, sleeping with all these businessmen. <laughs> It was a really, really fun month. Yeah. You didn't have like, you know, safety pins through your nose or anything like that. No, 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 no. (laughs) Just, you know, I mean, I just, you know, like black. (laughs) All black. That's New York. (laughs) (laughs) So what was the reaction to the music, to your films? Well, you know, when you traveled with them. Oh, always incredibly positive. People love it. Uh Because, you know, the sound is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, The pictures are good. And they're really exciting performances. So, uh, you know, I mean, I would be right on top of them. You know, mm-hmm. this wasn't like, you know, somebody with a, you know, like on a, on the back of the room. No. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I did everything handheld uh-huh. and I was, you know, like five feet away from them. Mm-hmm. I could have gotten COVID from them. <laughs> and yeah, it was, you know, it was very intimate and it yeah. feels very intimate. So uh, people always love it. And, and, you know, I always say that I would always fall in love with the musician a little bit when mm-hmm. I was shooting them, you know, and, and I think you can feel that, you know, when you, when you look at the videos. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Back in the day when all you had to worry about was, you know, maybe the musician sweating or spitting on you and, you know. Well, which, which uh, Americans never did. Yeah. Uh, it was a British thing. <laughs> So when did you realize you had something really, really valuable here? When we finished our tour, we, we kind of regrouped. And I said, I don't want to work in a nightclub anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't, uh, I, the music was changing also at that point. Yeah. What was this, like the mid 80s, late 80s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't so local anymore. Mm-hmm. And the local stuff, it was, it, you know, what can I say? I was getting older, you know? I mean, I was a good 28 years old by then. <laughs> and, uh, I just thought, well, you know, I'm not a hardcore kid, you know, which is sort of what, what the music was in New York again, you know, for yeah. the youngsters. And so, uh, you know, I hung up my, um, you know, my boots and I started working. I guess I started working at electron. Well, I guess I'd always been working there off and on electronic arts intermix, which was a post-production facility for artists. I'd been working with them off and on for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked with a lot of famous video artists mm-hmm. like uh, Nam June Pike and, and you know, lot, a, lot, a lot, Bill Viola, a lot, a lot of famous video artists. And then uh, I got offered a job teaching television at Burke Manhattan Community College for the city of New York. Okay. And I took it as an adjunct for mm-hmm. a semester. And it was, it was fun. I liked it. I liked the kids. Yeah. And, and then after the, after the first semester, they offered me a full-time position. And great. it was pretty great. You know, I, I mean, I always said I would never teach at NYU, but I was happy to teach at CUNY mm-hmm. because. Why? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like. What's the difference? Well, NYU is a bunch of rich kids. And <laughs> CUNY was, you know, kids that really could could use to learn something like this, you know, mm-hmm. and that could that could change lives. Yeah. Uh, NYU, oh, you know, I mean, your father always gets your job. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so 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 I, you know, I worked there for a long time 
and uh, it was it was kind of great. I ended up running the program, and it was nice. Mm-hmm. I did it till 1997, I think. Oh wow! Oh, okay, yeah. so why why did you go back and go into television then? Well, you know, I I, st- I started. <laughs> I actually started working at ABC again. I'd worked at ABC in the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, like for like, uh, I would do, you know, like six months. And then, you know, they, cause they would hire you part-time. They would mm-hmm. hire you for like, uh, they call them vacation relief people. Yeah. VRs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I worked there in 78 and I worked there again in 81. And when I was teaching, I started to feel very uncomfortable with the fact that I was teaching and not working in the business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I called up one of my friends at ABC and I said, do you think I can come back? And they're like, of course you can. I said, I'm yeah. free all summer. And they're like, of course. So I went back and it was, I came off the elevator and a guy I hadn't seen in like 12 years, like without breaking stride said, hi, Pat. <laughs> and so it was great. It was great. I mean, so I went back there and the amount of time they wanted me kept increasing. Yeah. And, and, and so it got to the point where I was working both jobs, you know, and mm-hmm. it was got to be too hard. Yeah. And uh, so I left in 1997 and went back to ABC full time. Yeah. And uh, did that for a couple of years. And then we had a, a horrible strike. And, uh, and, uh, I would walk the picket line four days a week and Mm -hmm. I got a part-time job at picks three days a week. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then they offered me a full-time job, Mm -hmm. which was stunning to me. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, that was how we met. Yep. That's the rest the rest is history. Yeah. So I never talked about my, my punk rock background, you know, at my at great TV jobs. You know, something people don't want to hear about what else you do besides your regular job. They just, really? that was something I discovered. People can be very snarky about it. Uh, and, oh, yeah. Uh, those are the insecure ones. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, I just thought, you know, better that I don't really talk about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is enough that what I'm doing is enough. Yeah. And. It was good. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed my years there. Yeah, a long time. What happened? Like, when did you um, decide to, um, did you did you donate your work to New York University yeah. or do they just hold on to it for you? They were incredibly generous. They have a, there's something called the Downtown Collection, mm-hmm. which is a, an archive of work by artists who lived in downtown New York from 1966 to 1986. Uh, The guy who ran it, this guy who was absolutely a genius, you know, called us and said, uh, his name's Marvin Taylor, by the way. Mm -hmm. He he called us and said, I'd like to acquire your work. Mm -hmm. And so we negotiated it for a couple of years (laughs) and they digitized everything, which was, Mm a freaking miracle. Uh, my partner always said she thought that uh, she was going to die and her parent and her, her uh, children would be throwing all of the videos into dumpsters. Just oh, no. <laughs> her, her mother's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? I know, but, but uh, like, that didn't happen. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, they, they digitized everything, which, I mean, that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Wow. Oh, and, I got the money. 
Yeah. So, I mean, they had, it was, you know, over a hundred hours of video. Uh-huh. And, uh, so they have, they gave us all copies on, on uh, digital files. Mm-hmm. They have copies on digital files and DVDs. Oh, but wow. they themselves are in a salt mine in Vermont. The, the originals? Yeah. A Which is, that keeps them well, keeps them. Oh my thing. God. Yeah. Isn't oh that my crazy? God. I know. That's wild. A salt mine. Yeah. Who knew that that would preserve things? I never heard of that either. That's but, uh, but they've been great. But we own the rights to everything. Mm-hmm. So we sell our footage to other documentaries. Okay. So the final episode of, what's it called? Parts Unknown. Oh, with Anthony Bourdain? Yeah. Was almost all the, the, the punk footage was ours. Oh, wow. But you know that last episode right when he died and yeah. he was doing all these things about New York, but he couldn't, yeah. he couldn't finish it, you know, mm-hmm. as a plan because he yeah. can't. Yeah. Um, so they, they acquired all this footage from us and so, you know, okay. sad way to sell footage. Yeah. But also we saw, you know, like the, uh, the Go-Go's documentary, um, the mm-hmm. Blue documentary. Okay. Um, there's a, uh, a couple of sh- there's a, sh- a show, a couple of shows that I can't talk about because I've got NDAs, but um, they've shows on Apple that that uh, we've sold stuff to. Oh, that's coming up. Oh, okay, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, do you promote anything? And you know, eventually when it does come out, you know, like can people go to your website? Yes, yes. We're doing a show right now at the uh, Museum of the City of New York called uh, New Music New York. And we're doing a lecture on May, I think it's the 26th. It's, it's a Thursday night. It's okay. called Cocktails and Conversation. Is that April 26th? Oh, culture. Cocktails and Culture. Oh. And uh, that's at the Museum of the City of New York. And, and we're also doing a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Westport called Punk is Coming. That's, that just opened, I guess it was like a week or two ago. Okay. Doing a lecture there uh, Thursday, March, sorry, May 6th. Okay. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's been great. We've been, we've been, we've been busy. (laughs) That's interesting. That's, and people are still coming to you for, you know, for, to, you know, buy, buy uh, footage and stuff. All the time. I mean, we're not exactly, you know, getting like insanely rich from this by any stretch of the imagination. Especially since we've done nothing but lose money on this from the beginning, because everything we did, we had to self-finance. Yeah. You know, nobody ever say we never got a grant for anything. Yeah. So when we would have to, I mean, oh my God, in the beginning when we would have to like, you know, scrape our money together to buy videotapes. Oh, jeez. You know, and then, you know, of course, the, the amount of equipment we had, it would be these huge metal trunks of equipment that we would have to take to these nightclubs and we'd have to take taxis back and forth and then drag them up and down the stairs. I mean, we were like skinny oh girls, you know, with yeah. like how to go. But um well, it was a labor, a labor of love. A labor of love, absolutely. Yeah. But we we did we weren't exactly uh generating uh money from all of this. But yeah. but now we're, you know, I feel like we're making back some of all the thousands and thousands of dollars. All the work, yeah. Well, and also you saved a part of history. Yes, we did. Yeah. I was very happy about that. I'm yeah. still happy about that. I'm still I'm still angry about the, the bands that I missed and you know. Yeah. Well, there's never enough time in the world. 
No, no, there really is everything. Yeah. So I guess that's, uh, you know, you have to just be happy with what you did get, which is probably more than anybody else did. That's true. That's yeah. true. So um, what is the website? The website is gonightclubbing.com. Okay. All and, right. Uh, G-O-N-I-G-H-T-C-L-U-B-B-I-N-G. Okay. And, All right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, come to Mocha Westport, come to the Museum of the City of New York. You can see um, we have a whole little video lounge set up at the at, actually at both places. So. How long is the the one at the, the City of New York? How long does that go for? So, that's been open since last April, a okay. year ago. April. Okay. And it'll be a year like any day now. And okay. it's going to be open till September. Oh, and, OK, good. Okay. And then it's going on the road. September. So it's there until September twenty. 20- 2022. Got it. Okay. All right. And, and the Mocha, the one in Westport is open, I think till June. Till June of 2022. Okay, good. Okay, great. All right. Well, that's awesome. Well, Pat Ivers, I want to thank you for being my very first guest. I don't feel at all like a guinea pig. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Brushed by Fame. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. And if you'd like more information, want to connect online, or think you have a Brushed by Fame story, please go to brushedbyfame.com. And thanks for listening.